Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Professor David Raskin at the School of Art Institute of Chicago has spent more than 10 years researching and writing about Donald Judd, one of the most significant American artists of the 20th century. The Museum of Modern Art will present the exhibition Donald Judd from March 1st through July 11, 2020, the first major U.S. retrospective dedicated to Judd in over three decades. The more I see of Donald Judd's beautiful work, the more I need to understand who he was. And in this interview, David Raskin helps us understand and decode the essence of Judd's artistry. So, David, welcome to New York and uh, to the show. Anders, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And you made it through the snowstorm. <laughs> yes, New York is always best when it's sunny and soggy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last night we had, a, had an incredible nor- nor'eastern, I guess the first one of the season, and everybody was taken by, by surprise. So, David, why did you write this book about Donald Judd? Well, I... Um you know, stumbled onto it a little bit. When I was doing my doctoral work, we were, I did that at Austin, Texas, the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, Judd had just died when I got to Austin. He died in 94. That was my first semester out there, six months after he died. And they had canceled the open house at the Chinati Foundation in Marfa, Texas. And like most people who had sort of come up in the arts in their early 90s, minimalism and Judd had a very bad reputation. There was an important article by a woman named Anna Chave, who um, is a New York City art historian, writing about how minimalism was all about oppressive power. You look at it, and you feel this masculine power dictating your behavior to you. And I was pretty much in line with that. I mean, you hadn't seen much Judd, thought that he was um, an authoritarian figure, thought that he was making these uh, reduced mathematical formulaic works. However, When I got to Texas, my friends were enthusiastic. Some of them had actually met Donald Judd before he died. They'd Mm -hmm. been in Texas before I got there. Mm -hmm. And the year after he died, we went to the open house at Chinati. So -hmm. this is 1995, and almost nobody had heard of Marfa. Marfa was still, you know, a couple gas stations and the Chinati Foundation and the Judd Foundation. Mm -hmm. And when Judd was alive, he was running them both together. But it got out there in 95 for the open house. Yeah. Nobody was there, so it wasn't popular. Open houses drawn like 5,000 people in recent years. Wow. In 95, there were probably a few hundred. <laughs> and I'm looking around at all of this works of art that no one had seen, or at least they hadn't seen it in person, or if they'd seen photographs of it, they hadn't paid it any attention because minimalism was on the outs in the 90s. But I'm walking around the 100 mil aluminum pieces yeah. in the sheds, thinking, this is an incredibly rich and rewarding experience where I don't exactly understand what I'm looking at, but I'm captivated in like a perpetual flow that just keeps opening up to me. The more I put into it, the more I got out of it. Hmm. So, you know, immediately I understood that the received knowledge about Donald Judd, at least in the 90s, was wrong. Hmm. People just hadn't seen enough. They hadn't been patient with it. They, had, they weren't looking for themselves. So he was a reaction 
against something, I guess, then. Is that fair to say, that, that he was new in the sense that people didn't understand what the newness of it was? And, uh... Well, that's certainly true. So when the early minimalism sort of hit the scene and started to get exhibited in the early 60s, mm -hmm. uh, there were a lot of complaints because it's coming out of the context of the gestural abstraction or the color field painters. So it's easy to see how Barnett Newman or Mark Rothko were um, immediately invoking transcendent kinds of ideas. You sort of feel your own loss in looking at a Mark Rothko and you wonder you know, where you are, what your place is in that picture. Or you look at the energy in a Jackson Pollock and you make direct transfers from his activity to your activity and you kind of travel through time and you realize that, well, I share something with Pollock and also with all of humanity. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a Donald Judd made out of like cadmium red planks or Carl Andre made out of bricks mm -hmm. or, you know, Dan Flavin made out of fluorescent light fixtures that he bought at the hardware store. Mm -hmm. People thought it was a bit of a Duchamp joke, mm -hmm. like they were being put on. Like, how was there any art in these actual, literal materials directly on the floor or put on the wall without any kind of a frame? Where was the art in that? Yeah. And so could you explain to our listeners, what, what, did, what was his art? What did he produce, uh, uh, Donald Judd? You said he was like uh, uh, very physical uh, manifestations. Could you, could you talk to that? What, uh, I mean, boxes and, and stacks and stuff. Yeah, so early on in the 1960s, Judd's making what I called, um, what I like to think of as like occasional pieces. He had an occasion to make them. So he found a black pipe with a bend in it. Mm. And he liked the ratio. So he makes a, um, a wood frame that goes around it where the two angles join and form a column. And the ratio of the sides is the same as in the pipe. And the wood sides are cadmium red, and they play against the black metal of the pipe. Mm -hmm. And the pipe's got holes in one end, but you can only see the holes from behind the boards. So you can like look through the solid boards, or you can look past the pipe into the openness of the boards. So you get open and closed experience. You get contrasting color experience. You get literal space defined mm -hmm. both inside the object that he built and outside of the object he built. So these are crude objects slapped together roughly with just everyday kind of construction materials. Just cheap wood that he could buy or find, yeah. cheap pipes that he could buy or find, and he's using them only as they are. They don't represent anything else. So what he's doing is giving us situations to experience what his assemblies do. Mm -hmm. So that means also that the, 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 um, the object, because he didn't like the word sculpture, if I correctly, if I understand That's right, because that belonged to a Western artistic tradition of representation. Yes, and he didn't like that. No, he did not like that at all, because he thought that his object, his red boards and black pipe, were simply red boards and black pipe. They didn't refer to anything else. They didn't represent anything else. All they were about was the experience that a viewer had confronting them. Yeah. So I went to the Judd Foundation on, on an exhibition. I saw these, these boxes that, that were hanging on the wall, and, and they looked like AC ducts. And, and, but they do something. It was much more than that, but then I was struggling with the fact that, you know, they look like AC duct. So is, is that normal, <laughs> that you have that reaction to his art? Well, yeah, so most people didn't think that the art was art because it um, seemed familiar in relation to the built environment. 
So some of Judd's pieces are in series. So you have you know, seven or eight angle irons in a row. Well, those look a bit like the radiators that he would have been looking at in his Soho, in his Spring Street loft. Yeah. Or when you look at um, um, like the angle irons moving up, they look like your staircase. Yeah. So because Judd's boxes or works of art um, are made with the same materials that our built environment is made from, people often see familiar associations. But there's an important relationship there is that like the air conditioning duct, mm. what doesn't disappear and talk about you know winters in Antarctica, it's like an air conditioner duct. It stays there. You know what it is, and you don't think it's anything else, and it doesn't refer to anything else. Mm. And Judd wanted his works of art to have exactly the same kind of physical presence, or even if they seem effervescent because they're made out of translucent, reflective materials, yeah. either colored plexiglass you can see through, reflective yeah. metal, yeah. nonetheless, that's an actual physical property of the metal or the plexi. Mm. So they simply are what they are, even though they have effects upon you. Yeah. Frank Stella, one of Judd's minimalist peers, though Stella was a painter, mm -hmm. and Judd and Stella were interviewed together in the early years of the 60s as people wanted to know what they were about, uh, most famously said about his own paintings, what you see is what you see. But he meant that that's all it is. Mm. It's just the painting on the wall. Mm. And rather than mean something, it has sensual consequences and effects on the viewer. You look at it, and try to figure out what it's doing to you. Yeah. Now, he was also an art critic, and he was very articulate in the way he, he looked at art and analyzed art, and he wrote a manifesto called Specific Objects. Mm -hmm. Now, what was the essence? How could you explain the, that manifesto to our listeners? Well, what was the main principles that he presented in that manifesto? Yeah, well, that's... a. Uh you know, one of the most important um, articles of contemporary art criticism, or at least of art criticism from, you know, the post-World War II era, Donald Judd's Specific Objects, 1965. And Judd had been working as an art critic. People didn't know he was an artist. After uh, coming back from Korea, he was in Korea before the war, mm. as like most of those artists of that generation were. Judd was born in 28. Gets a college degree. Uh, in New York City, working as an art critic, writing reviews for you know ten dollars yeah. for Arts Magazine, reviewing all the shows around him that he could, just seeing what's going on, befriending artists, befriending artists like Barnett Newman especially. Uh, Barnett Newman liked younger artists; he liked to know what they were interested in, and he was willing to you know spend time talking to them. Mm. Um, so Judge writing the criticism, he's looking at what's going on, he's looking at what matters. He's seen Warhol as a young artist, seen Rauschenberg, Johns, those are young artists in the early 60s. He's seeing this just huge explosion of abstraction after abstract expressionism. So the next generation is really breaking upon the New York City mm. scene as becoming more international. You've got Asian artists and European artists moving to New York City to join what the New York School had created, which was an interest in contemporary art. So Judd gets commissioned in 1964 to write a survey article for what's going on and what matters. And he writes it for Arts Yearbook, and it's called Specific Objects. So that essay that was published the year later in 1965 is Judd's overview of what he thought 
was going on in New York City in the past year that mattered. Mm. And it begins with the one of the all-time most famous sentences that half or more of the best new art is neither painting nor sculpture. And even if I didn't get the first part of that completely right, the neither painting nor sculpture mattered because sculpture and painting were both traditions. So consequently for Judd, any work of art that fit within that tradition was doing nothing new. Mm. It was the same old, same old. That those traditions, those explorations of the mediums, the medium of painting, the medium of sculpture, were so bound to the Renaissance and after tradition that anything that somebody could say was a painting was immediately the same as everything that had come before it. So if artists were to remain fresh and new and vibrant, if art wasn't simply to be a nostalgia practice, the best art didn't fit those formal categories. So Judd names you know, some 50 artists that he thinks are really interesting. For a manifesto, it's a very broad call for who fits. So he talks about um, Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg neither of whom you would think of as a minimalist, Mm -hmm. but what they're doing is they're making what Judd thought was a specific object, a thing that was nothing but itself. It was new, it was fresh, it had integrity, and it wasn't trapped within the weight of art's own traditions. And it didn't make associations to other things. It may have, the viewer might be able to see things into it, Mm -hmm. but that's because viewers bring real complex backgrounds to works of art. But when Rauschenberg's hanging a tire around a stuffed ram, he's not making an association or a reference to like farming or automobiles. (laughs) So Judd could recognize associations, but was important that art had its own integrity to be free from everything else but art. Hmm. So it was a, a, a manifesto of a new generation that was coming through, and he was, he was analyzing this, and he formulated this. Now, he uh, is considered to be a minimalist, even though he himself didn't like that uh, term. That's right, and he also never believed that specific objects was a manifesto. So everyone nowadays calls it the manifesto of minimalism. I see. Uh, as a practicing critic, Judd thought he was simply, you know, writing a survey of what mattered in contemporary art. I see. And those were his sort of values of what mattered. He thought he was working in this spirit of the partisan critic, the engaged critic who was passionate and partisan. So in the tradition of, you know, the great Baudelaire tradition, but also of Clement Greenberg, who was, you know, taking a stand for a certain kind of art. Yeah against other kinds of art. And Judd makes a big deal about specific objects that he did not discuss himself or include his own work of art in that, that that was the editor's decision to include an illustration of Judd's art in that article, Specific Objects. Mm-hmm. But it is true that it was a, became a bit of a manifesto. It was really a statement for the period about um, moving beyond the limits of a formal practice into new materials into materials without traditions, uh, into works of art that created dynamic, confusing, confrontational experiences for viewers. Hmm. And that's why Judd never thought he was a minimalist. So what Judd was doing was eliminating, or what he thought he was doing was eliminating all of the um, unnecessary fluff from his work of art. 
mm-hmm. and making sure it retained only the visual punch it needed to give a um, vast visual experience to the viewer. So, like, if you look at one of Judd's stacks that people have seen, so maybe eight boxes yep. lined up the wall, mm-hmm. metal around the sides, colored plexiglass on top. It doesn't refer to anything. It links the floor and the ceiling, so it defines the space of that wall, which would otherwise be undefined. But when you stand in front of it, you recognize that the eight units are identical, but each one of them looks different. They reflect differently. They appear differently in perspective. When you shift your weight slightly, more of it's revealed, more boxes are revealed than other boxes. The high boxes become more present and the low don't. The shadows change, the colors change, the glow from the ambient light changes. So it's just those simple materials anchored into real space that defines the room in a new way. I mean, that's a huge experience. Most people don't see it because they think, oh, that's all it is. It's just metal running up the wall. My child could do it. I saw that at Home Depot. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But what matters is that, you know, you could maybe have a kind of aesthetic experience with an air duct at the Home Depot. But once you move that experience into an art context, it means something completely different for the viewer. It does something completely different. It strips you away, it strips your expectations away from you. It lets you pay attention to your perception without the history of what you know and the history of what you've already experienced. And it lets you simply perceive and feel Mm. without any kind of knowledge and see what that does to you. What movement did he think that he belonged to if it wasn't minimalism? And, and while you think about that question, let me read your first paragraph in your wonderful book that I thought was very uh, interesting. You, says, you say, Donald Judd created spirit as well as form, thought together with feeling, and ethics alongside uncertainty. Polarities like these help keep existence open and are I imagine one of the reasons why he objected to the label minimal. I don't think anyone's work is reductive, he protested in 1966. Mm. So how did he look upon himself? Yeah, well, that's a fabulous question. Uh, Judd, of course, you know, had friends and colleagues, people whose work he thought was related to his. But I think more than anybody else, Judd thought that he was pushing the legacy of Barnett Newman. So um, so did they have a father and son relationship on one hand? Or were well, I think, yeah, father and son might be a little strong. Uh, Newman, Newman did not have children, mm-hmm. um, but they liked each other, and they liked talking about art. Newman was a very smart man who published a lot of art criticism himself and who was a political anarchist. He ran for the mayor of New York City on the, anarch- on the socialist platform. So Newman was politically engaged. And um, you know, sort of 20 years before Judd, so Newman kind of set an example of how a articulate, engaged, worldly artist could have a spare practice that also um, caused people to feel transcendent values. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a Newman painting that Donald Judd uh, wanted to buy, Shining Forth to George, it's just a white canvas with a brown-black zip at one end, 
a thick stripe in the middle that's kind of a stripe, kind of a shape, and then a complementary zip at the other end that's solid instead of invert, inverted. So when you look at that, you've got all these patterns and ratios that you can begin to make in your mind, and all the play between a positive space and a negative space, the, black, the white of the canvas, the black of the zip. And then you have the feelings of vast expanses and the literalness of the canvas surface. Mm. So you're dealing with um, sensed experience that is into depths we cannot understand but can only feel, and the literal real world that we inhabit. And then you're dealing with ratios of shapes and colors and gestures that you can combine in all sorts of different ways and patterns that are both mathematical, because you can say it's, well, three blank spaces to three black zips. Mm -hmm. But it's also perpetual, because you can begin to make those combinations over and over, a two to one, a five to two, whatever kind of pattern you want, because these patterns don't end. So this example of Newman's, the concrete to the metaphysical, mm -hmm. that polarity from what is literally here in front of you red boards and a black pipe yeah. to a sense of um, the loss of your human particularity is something that Judd tried to span. And that's why the, I guess the third sentence in my book, or the third word in my book is spirit, because Judd was not a concrete artist like Carl Andre. Judd wasn't stacking bricks up in a line on the floor to talk about the relationship between the space of the gallery and the Marxist implications of the labor that goes into bricks. Judd had some of those kinds of commitments to literal space, but Judd didn't believe human existence was nothing but this physical material world. He was looking for more from it. Hmm. So he didn't consider himself belonging to any kind of movement in that way, or an ism, or anything like that. He seems to be very uh, independent from that. Yes, but he had allies. He had people whose work he admired that he thought were doing um, things aesthetically that he also wanted to do in his own art. Mm. So Dan Flavin remains almost a lifelong fan, a friend, because Flavin is doing a lot of the same, from the light fixtures you buy in the stores yeah. to this you know, vast intensity of ineffable light. Yeah. Did they ever collaborate, combining their skills? Well, um, only in a, in a remote way. So Chinati Foundation in Marfa, Texas, mm -hmm. Flavin designs installations for six of the barracks in, at the Chinati Foundation in Marfa, Texas. So he designs those just before Judd dies, 92, 93. And Judd had intended to install those six Flavin works in his museum with um, barracks designed just for Flavin, renovated just for Flavin. Mm -hmm. They're U-shaped barracks with um, Flavin's pieces at the ends on the crossbeam. Mm -hmm. And um, Judd died before those were installed, and Marianne Stockebrand, the Chinati Foundation director, saw that project through. Mm -hmm. But um, they did not physically collaborate. However, Judd owned one of Flavin's early icons, mm. a 1962 or 1963. It's over there in Spring Street. Mm. And Flavin's um, diagonal, untitled diagonal of the 3rd of May is um, subtitled to Donald Judd, to Don Judd. Mm. So they were friends like that. And of course, Judd's son is named after Flavin. That's right. But no, they didn't, they didn't make art together. Mm. 
I did, did he collaborate with any any artist of his time? He did not collaborate with any artist, though there's a bit of a story about him collaborating with a plumber. So the piece that's nicknamed the Jungle Gym yeah. is a large floor piece made out of um, pipes and pipe fixtures that are assembled. And it's dedicated to the plumber, Dave Shackman. And that's from 64, 66. It's out there in um, the Judd Foundation in Marfa, Texas. So apparently there was a collaboration with the plumber of sorts. And I don't exactly know if Judd and the plumber were laying the pipe together or not. <laughs> so, that's funny. I mean, you know, Flav and Judd would know that. that that's, that's wonderful. So, writing a book about Donald Judd, so what was your approach to that whole thing? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of an academic project was where it got starts. I was in Texas, mm -hmm. and I had discovered this Donald Judd stuff that nobody had really ever seen or thought about. Yeah. Uh, in the 90s, Judd was out of fashion. Nobody was interested in minimalism back then. It is amazing how far that reputation has gone. Judd was on the outs in the early 90s. Now minimalism is as big as anything could ever be. I mean, it's truly amazing, that 180-degree turn in three decades. Um, so I was out there, and I saw this art that didn't fit what people were saying about it. Mm. And I was reading Judd's writings, which had a, a real kind of local politics writings, kind of an anarchist spirit. He was writing about, in the late 60s and 70s, during the era of civil rights and the anti-Vietnam War movement, about how you could break New York City up into 50 townships, yeah, have local self-government. And his wife, Julie Finch, uh, Julie Judd then, uh, was really involved in this also. She was a, a real activist. Her um, father was the president of the War Resisters League here in New York City. And so I was interested in, well, how could Judd um, be this sort of anarchist, local politics, kind of political activist, writing these political essays, and make works of art that you could see in the corporate lobbies. So I just didn't understand that kind of contrast between an artist making art that you know, wealthy corporations bought for decoration, yeah. and this guy who wanted to break New York City up into 50 town halls. <laughs> so I specifically set out to figure out what, if anything, united the ideas behind both of those, behind the works of art and the politics. And I was really centered on a few themes. Most importantly, I think, is, especially for this day and age, is that you can't believe anything you don't verify for yourself. Mm -hmm. So Judd is really, in his works of art, turning it over to the viewer to look and think. Everything you've learned about art falls away. It doesn't matter. If you've learned about Michelangelo, if you've learned about Jackson Pollock, that doesn't help you understand a Judd. All that helps you understand a Donald Judd work of art is looking at it and asking yourself what it does to you mm -hmm. and why it does that. And really, that was the centerpiece of Judd's politics also, was the individual as the smallest unit working together with other individuals to find to solve problems. So it was from the individual on out. Hmm. And that's the, you know, the main feature. Also, there are other features like 
Judd's work of art, there's no hierarchy. There's no top, there's no bottom, there's no center, there's no periphery, there's no front, there's no back. And that, of course, was this idea of a um, you know, radical democracy, where you have no leaders, you mm-hmm. have no chiefs, you just have citizens coming together with each other yeah. to make things work. Hmm. So in the book, you have a few chapters that seem to be central. Could you tell us a little bit about them, the themes that you have picked out to describe his, his art? Yeah, so the, cha- the fourth chapter, Citizen Judd, I was just talking about. Yes. And that was really about the relationship between the so-called minimal art and the anarchist ideas. And Judd was a really interesting kind of New York City character. So he dovetails into these New York City battles. Should there be a Crosstown Expressway through Soho? You know, what happens to all the Italians if you bulldoze their houses? So who should be mayor? You know, how do you rally people together to oppose the city? I mean, it's a real kind of New York character of an activist. And a lot of that material I dug out of his papers and lots of archives, yeah. you know, like the Peace Action Collection at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. But there are other chapters that really focus on um, what we're looking at. Yes. So like disparity as a method, which might be the world's worst chapter title ever. So <laughs> when I look at that now, I just sort of laugh. Like I'll never again write a book with a chapter called disparity as a method. But what I was specifically trying to get out there was the difference between, say, yellow plexiglass, which is solid and right in front of you, and the fact that it's translucent, that its color changes at every instant, that it reflects the world around it while you can see through it to what's behind it, while it is tremendously fleeting. So you have real physical materials that are tremendously elusive. And I was trying to get at how Judd combines those, both in the structures he uses, the three-dimensional prisms mostly, mm-hmm. and in the materials that he chooses, hmm. which call into question, like, where is the surface? Mm. What color is that? Mm-hmm. What weight is this metal? Mm. Those very kinds of sensory properties that we just can't get our finger on. You should be able to, and you can't. Mm. So what does that do to a viewer? What kind of loss and knowledge? What does it happen when you combine, you thought you knew something, and you don't when you look at it? So what does it mean for us to be at a loss in our own built world? And Jed was hoping that we could take those lessons where you're at a loss, but you struggle and come to grips with the situation, overcome it. Mm-hmm to recognize that that's the essential feature of the life we have to live, Mm. that we have to come to terms with our loss and move on. Because like a person or artist of his generation, he's always, um, as a good progressive, as a good pragmatist, believing that we're in an emerging world that we together create. So nothing is fixed, and his art demonstrated that lack of a closed system. Mm. And humans together can contribute to the future in hopefully good ways. Yeah. And you also have another chapter on scale. Could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so scale's really interesting. Scale was a particular theme of the abstract expressionists, but many artists of Judd's generation take it up as the central problem for art. 
not like a formalist problem of color or not like a formalist problem of material and surface, but scale. So normally when we think of scale, you think of like a map, like one inch is a thousand miles, something like that. But for the abstract expressionists and the generation of artists who came after them working in the 60s, scale was felt human experience. So Barnett Newman in my favorite film about artists, Painter's Painting, Emile de Antonio's Painter's Painting from 1972 or three, mm-hmm. says um, size doesn't matter. All that matters is scale, human scale. And what Newman's talking about is you're feeling as a viewer in front of a work of art. Do you feel like you're in charge of it? Do you feel like you can control it? Well, if that's the case, the work of art's a real failure because you shouldn't be in charge of the art. It does nothing for you. It lets you be comfortable with who you are and what you know. Mm-hmm. And he calls that small scale. What <laughs> the abstract, and, uh, and for Newman, a big work of art can have small scale. It's not a question of size. It's like a, you know, there's a 300-foot Andy Warhol up right now, Andy Warhol Shadows, mm-hmm. 300 feet long or something like that. I guarantee that's got small scale. Not that I've seen it, but I'm just speculating. But I'm going to see it. And I bet that I won't feel like overwhelmed by it, despite its size. Mm. But like a little Mondrian, that's got huge scale. I mean, it's like, you know, two feet by two and a half feet. And all of a sudden, the compressed tension built into that Mondrian. Mm. Just the black lines, the yellow square, the blue triangle, the red. The compressed tension built into that lets you know that that Mondrian is going to come out and like slap you in the face. Hmm. It's in charge of you. So what the abstract <laughs> expressionists and many of the minimalists wanted was works of art that decentered us, that knocked us off of our stride, uh, that gave us something new, something unexpected, something fresh. Yeah. I mean, and you see this in the vast earthwork projects of the 70s that came next. So like Robert Smithson was interested in scale. So you go out there to a spiral jetty. Well, that's big. But what's more important than being big, because we've all seen the photographs of it, and maybe you've seen the film, and maybe you've read what Smithson wrote. What's more important than it being big is that you can't understand it. So when you're there, you can't figure out what this is. Mm. You don't have a sense of it. You Mm. can't handle it. It exceeds your familiar boundaries. It's off-putting and disorienting. Hmm. So that's what Judd wanted. He wanted us to look at like a yellow and stainless steel plexiglass box and not know what it is, hmm. even though you know what those materials are. That's fascinating. Hmm. I, you know, in some ways, it's a um, secular version of a religious experience. Judd was really a believer in the aesthetic value of art. It had to be different from everything else. So it couldn't just be you know, nails in a hardware shop. There was something special in art, and it could address what it meant to be a person yeah. in a special way. Mm. You also talk about local order, some, the concept of local order. Um, what is that, and why is that, why is that important? So what Judd is interested in is works of art that set up their own rules within themselves. So for instance, perhaps the best way of understanding this is um, in terms of like a Frank Stella painting. Mm -hmm. So you look at a 
shaped canvas by Frank Stella, like a W. And what Stella does is he drags the brush along the edge of the W. And then he goes a quarter inch over and drags the W shape again and drags the W one more time. So it's like Stella has set up a grammar, a set of rules for the language, and then he's given us an individual sentence within it, a kind of syntax. So it's self-contained. So art with a local order sets its own rules and discusses only those rules in individual instances. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's, I mean, I think language is the right parallel. Mm. So every language is, um, have their own rules, have their own grammar that sets up what you can and cannot say. Mm -hmm. So um, the words within the grammar refer to the rules of the grammar. So yesterday I'm looking at the Toma Apps exhibition at the Art Institute of Chicago. Geometric painter, huge star. There's no rhyme nor reason to any of those paintings. They're just design. They're just decorative. It looks like serious minimalism from the 60s, but there's no purpose to it. It could have been anything. Each of Judd's work of, works of art sets its own rules so you understand why it is the way it is. There's a framework and an enactment. So it's not arbitrary. It's not idiosyncratic. After the Cadmium Red pieces in the early 60s, those are kind of idiosyncratic, mm -hmm. the occasional pieces. Find a pipe and make something. Mm -hmm. But once Judd moved beyond that, he figures out what he's doing mm -hmm. in the verticals and the horizontals, on the wall, on the floor. And there's a very narrow set of parameters that every piece works within. Mm -hmm. So every piece has, has justification. It is a variation on a theme. Mm. It's like a... Um, algorithm that runs. Mm. That, in fact, in, to use language we might use nowadays, Judd is setting algorithms that determine the works of art. I see. So his art was, was manufactured. Um, he used uh, people who helped him to basically produce these uh, objects. And there, there was a, a discussion there with Mark de Suvero. Uh, I, I found out in my research here that where he, where they had a little bit of a debate, I don't know how, how far it went, uh, that de Suvero's point was that you have to make it yourself in order to be art. And, and, and here he's basically outsourcing, to use a modern term, for something that he produced. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's the hangover of... Um, no one has that conversation after the 70s, basically. <laughs> so that's the sort of a hangover of traditional, you know, atelier-based art. Yeah. Um, but it is true that Judd uh, was a sort of a terrible manufacturer. So the early pieces are completely just slapped together. It's like he just bought a hammer and nails and slapped these wood pieces together. They get a little better when his dad helps him build them. Mm -hmm. But by the time he turns to the metalworking in the, say, 64, 65, he's using a, an, actually an HVAC manufacturer, speaking of air conditioning ducts. Yeah. So it goes to Bernstein Brothers, which is basically a duct company. Yeah. And this is piecework. So, you know, it's like three guys bending the metal yeah. on forms for him, putting it together. Yeah. And the pieces from the 60s are very rough. These weren't, this wasn't, you know, the kind of art fabricators we now have who are incredibly skilled with high-tech machines. These were HVAC guys bending tin, not tin, but bending aluminum. Yeah. Um, but through the decades, as the technology gets um, better able to do kind of piecework for artists, as he gets wealthier 
and can have special runs through high-tech factories. As he starts moving the production in the 80s and 90s to Europe, uh, the quality of the production gets better. But yes, Judd did not think that um, the art was tied to his personal expression, so he had no feeling that he needed to get his sort of fingers involved in it. Mm -hmm. What the work of art was about was you looking at it. Yeah. It wasn't about you like feeling Judd's passion and labor. It was about the viewer looking at it and seeing what it does. In fact, if you saw like a thumbprint in the paint, that would distract from what he wanted. That'd be like a Jackson Pollock sort of expression thing, mm -hmm. you know, the hand of the artist. Yes. Yeah. So Judd was not self-expressive. Mm. But of course, you know, most people think that that is the real value of art, is it lets us have intuitions of people's passions and feelings and perhaps also see and feel our own. I see. So uh, he, he exhibited his, his art uh, during um, four decades all around the world. Yeah. Um, how did he sell this? So it was limited editions, or was it one-offs? Yeah, so it's mostly limited <coughs> series. Most of the works came in threes, mm -hmm. some of sometimes fives, mm -hmm. mostly threes, though. They're dated, by, they're dated by purchase order. So sometimes the same work of art is made in a couple of decades. So the date of the work of art is like the original. So mm -hmm. the, the original purchase order going in. So there's a famous 1964 piece out in the Judd Foundation. It's called The Swimming Pool. It's a cadmium red rectangle on the floor. It looks like a kiddie pool, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's made by Bernstein Brothers. It's um, you know bent metal. Yeah. But there are many more, re there are not many. There is another, and maybe two other, more recent beautifully manufactured editions of that piece. Um, yeah, so the Judds are in multiples, which is not so uncommon. However, there's the notorious example of when he sold Count Giuseppe Panza permission and plans to build works of art for Panza's collection in Varese, Italy, so north of Milan. And um, some of those pieces went to the Guggenheim. Um, but some of the pieces weren't made to judge standards. So Panza used screws that didn't look right. Mm -hmm. And he used metal that was you know, too beautiful. So Judd sent one of his representatives to Italy to review everything, to let Panza know, you know what was wrong and what needed to be done. Yeah. And Panza refused to do anything about it. So Judd declared all those pieces to be uh, forgeries and not his art. And he wrote a uh, lengthy essay published in four installments about that, about his dispute with Count Giuseppe Panza. Hmm. Interesting. So even though it's manufactured, it has to be manufactured according to the artist's intention. Yes, according to his intention and his standards. Yeah. Now, you know, I can't verify. I'm sure it's not the case that he saw every piece that was ever manufactured especially you know, some of the later Swiss works. I don't know that for a fact, maybe he did, but you know, it would be, um, someone, else would, someone else would know, I just don't know if he's eyeballed and approved everything ever made 
especially in the later years of his career, yeah. in the 90s. I saw also in, in your book uh, that there was an analysis or a comment uh, from Donald Judd regarding the Swedish uh, painter Ole Bertling, which happens to be my father's favorite uh, painter. And uh, he says that Ole Bertling is one of the, the world's best colorists. And he mentioned Matisse and he mentioned other famous... Uh, but then he goes into saying something different. And what he said there, I couldn't quite catch. Yeah, so Judd, Judd collected Bertling. He had Bertling prints. Yeah. Um, and when you look at them, what he admired, I'm sure, and what I admire, is precisely the colors. The geometric forms that are colored are strange. There's no pleasing, familiar, expected color combinations. Each of those color combinations makes you work a little bit because it's not just like red, white, and blue. There's something a little different about all of those forms that gives you a really pleasurable colored experience but isn't something that you see all over the place. Mm. It's not a familiar color pattern. It's not familiar color arrangements. And that example was tremendously important to Judd in the sort of final years of his career when he was making what they're called the Swiss works, which are the colored metal trays that he assembles kind of like erector sets. Mm -hmm. They go on the wall or they go on the floor, and they'll put together eight colors or four colors or six colors. And mostly, they're all a little strange. And Judd began to think about how you could speak about colors, two colors existing as one. Mm -hmm. So he talks about strange ideas like two-color monochromes. So like red and black together, because they're familiar, are single color. A single color made up of two actual colors, because you have an expected experience of those two going together all at once. So. In looking around for original artists who are forging something unfamiliar and challenging that's causing people to experience something new and fresh, Judd sees Bertling as an example. However, I don't know if you ever spoke to your dad about this, Bertling had sort of transcendent ideas. He was really working in this European tradition from, say, Kandinsky and Malevich, that in looking at the work of art, we train ourselves to sense, better sense the essential spiritual nature of existence. Mm. And Judd wasn't willing to go that far with aesthetic experience. It wasn't for him to the spiritual, it was just toward the open. But, but Berling is, you know, almost of Matisse's generation. Mm. I mean, he's, he would have been 20 years, at least 20 years older than Judd. Yeah. But one of the important things for Judd with Bertling and a couple other European artists, Jan Schoenhoven also, was that Judd was um, denigrated as an American chauvinist. So often in the criticism of the 60s, he says things like, European painting is dead. <laughs> because he thought it was too much a part of a tradition. Yeah. So, you know, with that sort of American frontier spirit that Judd, I guess, thought that he still had yeah. being born in Missouri in the 20s. Yeah. He still thought there was a kind of um, freshness to American creations because it didn't have the weight of history behind it. Hmm. Whereas he thought that Europeans still had to dig themselves out of the weight of European cultural achievements. Hmm. 
So he'll say lots of nasty things like, you know, Eve Klein is okay, but he's just the biggest frog. <laughs> things along those lines. So the fact that he could point to a couple European artists that he admired and appreciated um, probably made him, you know, feel good that he could sort of be more inclusive, especially because he had so much more success early in Europe, especially in Germany, yeah. than he ever did in the United States. That's interesting. Uh, we haven't talked so much about the furniture so far. So how did he start doing furniture in the middle of this? Was it because of the material? Early, early on. Early on? Yeah, so he buys the cast iron building at Spring Street in 1968, mm -hmm. the same year he has his first retrospective at the Whitney Museum. And uh, it's got huge windows overlooking Prince Street. Mm -hmm. And he found he just no longer had enough privacy in that building. People would like, knock on the windows, see what he's up to. So, like a lot of artists in, of that generation, you know, Judd was about, Judd was 40 in 1968, but Judd, Smithson, Heiser, Walter de Maria, they were interested in vast open spaces, especially if you live in Manhattan where you don't have any of those. Yeah. So they started looking out west, and Judd um, was interested in buying property down in Baja, California to set up, you know, a studio out there and live away from everybody. But he got harassed at the border. He had long hair. The custom agents gave him a hard time getting in and out of the U.S. Hmm. So he thought he'd have trouble getting his art in and out. Yeah. So he remembered a town in Marfa, Texas he'd gone through on the train on his way to military training after he joined the service. So he went back and ended up uh, renting a house in Marfa before buying some property. Hmm. Uh, and he didn't like the furniture in Marfa, Texas. He didn't like what he could buy at the you know, home goods store in Marfa, Texas. All these like Queen Anne antiques were made in a factory in Michigan. So they were denigrated as you know, Michigan antiques. Mm -hmm. So he didn't like the way it looked. It was frilly, it was, had curly cues. So he just goes <laughs> to the lumber yard, buys some lumber, and knocks together the world's most uncomfortable chairs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, they're completely rectangular, they're square, they're hardwood. Yeah. So from the practical need of wanting furniture that he could abide, yeah. um, he started building the furniture. And again, that starts very rough, because Judd was not much of a carpenter. Mm. So he builds furniture for his use. Yeah. Bookshelves he liked to look at, a desk he liked to write on. He had very um, functional ideas about furniture. Mm. What do you do on a chair? You sit. So it should make you sit upright. You shouldn't be able to lounge. You shouldn't be able to slouch. You shouldn't be able to take a nap. It was for sitting. Mm -hmm. So um, he thought he was stripping his art down to the essence of its function. I'm sorry, his furniture. He thought he was stripping the furniture down to the essence of its function. Yeah. A chair is for sitting. A table is for holding your dishes so you can eat. Yeah. A desk is for writing. He has this, he separates, a furniture is this, art is this. But That's right. But then again, I mean, I think his furniture is pretty artful in many ways. So why, why was it so necessary for him to make that distinction? Yeah, and especially once he starts using the um, Scandinavian plywood, which yeah. is the laminated birch and all those colors. And once he starts hiring, you know, really skilled craftsmen to put together the furniture. Yeah. I mean, it's really luscious. However... Despite what you're saying, which makes complete sense to a reasonable person, that there is a you know, flow between the furniture and the art, that there's a relationship on a spectrum, mm. um, you can also maybe understand why Judd would draw a 
you know, hard line dividing the two because the complaint about his art is that it is just the same as a chair, that it's here in our space, taken up space. So Judd wanted to ensure that his works of art weren't some kind of Duchamp farce. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to, even though the chairs look like the boxes, you know, and they have positive and negative space, and they have colors, and when you put six of them in a row, they have the positive and negative and the open and closed, and they do the same kind of visual play that six boxes in a row do. Yeah. He wanted to make sure that his art had no purpose. Mm. So I think that he's just drawing a very hard line in the sand to say that a work of art has its own purpose, which is to be a work of art, and that furniture has its own purpose, which is to, you know, work as furniture in your lived environment. Yeah. It's interesting, parallel to, to Frank Gehry, I just read Paul Goldberger's book, uh, biography of him, and he did furniture too. But he was afraid that he was going to be known as a furniture designer and not as a great architect. That's so, interesting. So that was his uh, sort of drawing a distinction between the two. Now, Judd collected furniture. I mean, he really admired um, architecture designers. In Marfa, there's a Ritfeld chair, mm. and there's um, a lot of Alvar Aalto furniture. Yeah. Uh, he's got some Stickley furniture, Gustav Stickley. Mm. I mean, so he had, you know, real appreciation of furniture builders. Yeah. And they still produce his furniture. You can buy Judd furniture now. Yeah. Um, and it's really lovely and gorgeous. Yeah. So writing this book, then you lived with Donald Judd for a couple of years, I would guess. Yeah, do, 10, doing, 10 years. <laughs> doing the research. That's I thought right. it was like 20 archives that you went through. Yes, 20 archives. And then before writing the book, I must have published three or four standalone articles on Judd. I see. Um, none of which really get into the book. So I had so much material, and I kept working through ide- the ideas in a number of ways before actually writing that book. I see. So, in hindsight, how did that affect you as a, as a re- academic, as a person? How did it affect you, your work and, and what you did after and so on? Yeah, well, you know, that kind of immersion becomes really hard to separate yourself from the artist and the artist's ideas. Yeah. So, in learning, in trying to, in, in one of the things I did in writing the book was recreate Judd's own education. So he went to Columbia University and studied American pragmatic philosophy. Mm-hmm. John Dewey, William James, Charles S. Peirce, which was really out of fashion by the time I got to college and graduate school. So not a lot of people were reading that. So in order to figure out where Judd's ideas were coming from and what they meant, in a lot of ways I had to, for myself, recreate his own intellectual um, heritage. So in doing that, it took me a long time to try to leave it behind also to figure out, well, you know, what do I care about being someone born 40 years after Donald Judd was? Mm. So in writing the book, my main goal was to explain what he thought and what he cared about Mm. and why his art looks the way it looks in relation to his ideas. Yeah. But I think perhaps the most valuable thing I got out of my immersion to Judd Mm. was really learning to be um, sort of broader in what I appreciate in art. 
which is almost the opposite of what you would think. You would think a deep study of one of the minimalists would make you narrow. Mm -hmm. But instead, I have left it realizing that, well, what I really care about most is my relationship with those works of art, whatever that work of art is. Does it do something for me? Does it let me feel something I haven't felt or think something I haven't thought? Or does it let me have a new kind of experience? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter to me what the art looks like. It doesn't matter to me who made it. It doesn't matter to me what group or theme or style it belongs to. All I care about is something, is encountering something I don't feel like I understand right Mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. That gives me a moment of pause and a moment where, as a professional art historian, I'm at a loss. So maybe I've walked away with the essence of what Judd had appreciated also, but not involved in the same kind of intramural battles with that he was involved in. Mm-hmm. And what do you think is his legacy? Uh, you said that in the 90s he was very out, so to speak. In the, but he has come back and it's growing. You mentioned on the phone when we spoke that he's now also um, getting a, a lot of interest outside of the uh, architecture and design world, correct? Can you, can yeah, you well, point? it was interesting. When Judd was out of favor, he was busy... Um, applying to civic competitions to like redesign the central plaza in Providence, Rhode Island, mm. where there are um, a series of fountains in a plaza in Winterthur, Switzerland. Yeah. So architects, even as the art world wasn't paying attention, architects were paying attention mm. because the Marfa project, the Spring Street project, there's a um, house in Switzerland, these civic projects were all of interest to urban designers and architects. And there are you know, a lot more of those kind of people than there are of art historians. Yeah. But now with this real interest that spans the architects and the artists in what you might call the production of space and how art affects the perceived reality of the built environment, Judd and the minimalists are right in the center of that conversation hmm. because everyone is now interested in their lived experience. Yeah. And what an artist like Judd really clarified, honed to a tremendously fine point, is that that's exactly what art can do. It doesn't need to be about beauty. It doesn't need to be about the sublime experience. It doesn't need to be about the uncanny. It can be about making you attend to your lived experience more strongly and purely. And now with all the people that go to Marfa, Texas, that go to the Chinati Foundation, they really see that vision uh, clearly and in exactly the form that Judd wanted you to see it in. Mm. So he was no longer at the mercy of curators hanging his art poorly in a museum. Mm. He could display it in spaces he thought integrated the space, the built environment, and the object for the complete total package. Mm. And really, that's what I think the great legacy is, Mm. is the complete total package. That's what everybody wants. Mm. You see uh, Olafur Eliasson. He's given you the complete total package. Or Ragnar Kajarstasen in his video art. It's a complete package. Mm. So Judd had vast ambition and showed you could actually enact it. I see. And the great artists are following that. Hmm. Wonderful. That's very good. Okay. That's wonderful, David. Fun. What is your favorite Donald Judd object? 
Yeah, well, that's a great question. So I think what I like best is that angle iron piece. It's the black pipe with the bend in it that is closed off with the red painted, the cadmium red painted boards. What I like best about that is it's rough, it's hacked together, it's where Judd doesn't yet know what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense of experimentation, there's a sense of trial and error about it, there's ideas in it that he will abandon and leave behind. And um, it captures everything the rest of the works do later on without the elegance. Hmm. So for me, some of the work gets to be too pretty when you're dealing with the beautiful reflective brass and Mm -hmm. pink fluorescent plexiglass. Mm -hmm. Some of those works lose some of the toughness Hmm. that that early 63 piece loses, uh, still has, or then the some of the really awkwardly colored Swiss works from the early 90s where you don't understand the relationship of those colors. Those are tough to me, and those are at the far end of the career. So what I like is the work that is tougher because it's a little more awkward, it's a little less figured out, it's a little less pleasant. So probably that 63 angle iron piece. So it's a forerunner of what's That's right. It's a forerunner of the classic pieces. Yeah. It's wood and found object rather than, you know, the metal boxes. Well, well David, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. To this come. has been fun talking it's to been, you. It's been a roller coaster ride, and now I understand him even better. But uh, there, we have to go and, and check out the, uh, the foundation. That's right. I can't at, wait at to the, see those paintings. <laughs> the Spring Street is right, right around the corner. Now that I know so much more, I think I can get much more out of it. Well, thank you so much, David. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure really having you. Thank you so much. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation and subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes, if you're not already there, to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2020.